if you golf, you can appreciate when someone has to make a putt, the same line along which you have to make yours. Uh, you're able to judge your putt on the basis of theirs, and you're able to avoid making the same mistakes they make. Applied spiritually, the nation of Israel had to putt before us. They had to follow God first. We can learn from their mistakes and from their successes. When we stoop down, though, to examine their path, we find in the Bible evidence of resistance um, dragging their heels. The writer of Hebrews the letter analyzes the nature and cause of their resistance. Um, we learn why there were uh, heel marks in the sands rather than footprints. Um, writer, what we find says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What we learn, starting off, is they suffered from heart problems, a hardened heart and a straying heart. To a Jew at this time, the heart was not just the place of emotions. It's not just the place of love and hate. The heart is the center of decision-making. Um, a couple of verses, it says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And what they believed, the kind of thoughts that were generated in the heart were really controlling the life. It led to the thoughts, the attitudes, and the actions. It says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. To a Jew at the time, the heart makes or breaks for spiritual responsiveness. And so then when we think about hard-heartedness, let's think about a couple of things, and we'll find them in the text. What is it that characterizes hard-heartedness? What are the symptoms of hard-heartedness? And we're going to find two. Hard-heartedness can be evidenced by grumbling, and testing, by grumbling and testing. What it says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Grumbling. It says, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. When it talks about the rebellion, the, the rebellion is really the time of bitterness. That's what the word is. Do not harden your heart as in the time of bitterness. And when you think of bitterness, what do you think of? The kind of face of bitterness. It's, it's when you're displeased with something and you let somebody know it. Bitterness is when you're angry at someone and, and you do let them know it or you're angry at yourself. Um, a hard heart then spews bitter words at ourselves and others. So that's one of the symptoms of hard-heartedness. We find that in the Bible, it says the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sinai, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So, 
they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? The people quarreled with Moses, Give us water to drink. Their issue, however, wasn't really with Moses. Their issue was with God. God was the one who was leading them. They grumbled with Moses. But what Moses indicates that why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test that ultimately grumbling and quarreling was not really about their relationship with Moses? It wasn't their relationship with their neighbor. It was really about what they thought and felt towards God. Why do you put the Lord God to the test? Testing, then, the word, it's, it has to do with, it begins with having doubts about someone's trustworthiness. That's where testing comes from. When you think of someone, you have doubts about their trustworthiness. And because you have these doubts about their trustworthiness, that creates the need to test them. So what testing is, it's the attempt to determine the faithfulness of a partner or colleague who is under suspicion. If I work with you, and I suspect that you're not really working or doing what you want to do. What I might do is create a context where I can try to determine, are you really on the level or not? And that's what a test is. It, it's rooted in, I don't trust you. And then it leads to, I'm going to create some way that I can determine if you're going to be, if you're worthy of my trust or not. Um, so when we test God, we ask him to prove that he is worthy of trust. But what ends up happening, that usually is not a direct request. Testing is, we express it through grumbling. Fresmerism, fresmerism. So I'm mad at you, or I'm mad at the person, or I'm mad at my neighbor. And at some level, what Moses is saying, that kind of horizontal anger, it does say something about our vertical trust. And in this context, in the wilderness, God had consistently proven his faithfulness. It says, your father's put me to the test, saw my works for 40 years. All the miracles that he did were not enough to soften the hard-heartedness of the Israelites, and that seems to be the case. When there's doubt and questioning, no amount of evidence will override the doubt that has already crept in and seeded itself. Forty years of evidence did not overcome bitter hard-heartedness. The problem didn't stem from their not knowing the will of God. I asked you, what's God's will for your life? We struggle with that sometimes. We said, well, if I knew God's will, I, I would do it, but I don't know God's will. I don't know if I'm supposed to stay at this job or not. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to stay in this relationship or not. I'm not sure I'm supposed to do this or that or not. But if I knew God's will, I would do it. I just don't know it. That can be a problem sometimes. But they, when they were walking through the wilderness, had no problem knowing God's will. They knew exactly what God's will is. What it says, it by day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. So when the cloud moved, they moved. And when the cloud stopped, they stopped. Uh, what's the will of God? 
That's what we're doing. If the cloud stops, the will of God is that we are to be here. If the cloud moves, the will of God is that we move. There was no doubt whatsoever as to what the will of God is. That might seem enviable to know God's will, to be clear about God's will. That might seem like an enviable thing. The problem is, what do you do when you don't like where the cloud stops? That's a problem. Because it's not like... Is this God's will or not? The cloud stopped. And if I don't like where the cloud stopped, now God and I have a problem. Now, I might argue about you, and they argued with Moses, but their issue really wasn't with Moses. But in, in a case like this, when you're in the wilderness, you can't chalk up the will of God to confusion. There's no confusion. The cloud stopped, the pillar of fire stopped, and that's where God wants us to be. How do you, what do you do when the cloud stops in a place where there's no water? What do you do? And you've used up water resources going from point A to point B, and now you're at point B and there's no water. And there's no way you're going to get from point B to point C. What do you do when the cloud stops in a place where there's no water? What do you, what do, you do when the cloud stops in a place where there's no food? What do you do? when the cloud stops in the midst of disappointments. What do you do then? What do we do? When, we, when the, God's will leads us into disappointments, we assume that we missed God's will somewhere down the line. God would never lead me to a disappointing place, so it must be her fault, it must be his fault, it must be their fault, it must be Moses' fault. And the fact is, God leads us into disappointments, it seems. Well, we, we say he couldn't have wanted me to have this job. This job is disappointing. He couldn't want me to have this relationship. This relationship is disappointing. He couldn't have allowed this to happen because this circumstance is disappointing. God couldn't have led me to a place where I would be disappointed. Um, what it says biblically is that when we walk with God, we're not going to be able to base our faith in him on what we see. But it says, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. With respect to walking with God, we're not going to be able to base our faith on what we see in the checkbook, in our relationships, in our world, in our life. It says we live by faith, not by sight. If we were to come up with a definition for faith, I think what might say faith is confidence in God's care in spite of evidence to the contrary. Faith is confidence in God's care in spite of evidence to the contrary. And that's the thing that makes faith difficult. We believe that God does things or will do things, but the problem is that I believe that God does or will or has done this, but then if he's done this, why has he allowed that? And this promise makes me think that God is faithful, but this circumstance, that circumstance, brings that 
faith into doubt. Faith is confidence in God's care in spite of evidence to the contrary. Um, what do we put our faith in if we're not to put our faith in what we see? It's impossible to not take notice of breaking relationships. If there's a relationship that's fracturing, how can you not look at that? What are we supposed to put our eyes? If there's something disappointing at work and, you're, and you don't know whether you're going to stay there, what do you put your eyes on? What do you look at? Um, there's a verse in the Bible to look at. It, I think it helps us a little bit. It says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. It says his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And so God has somehow accessed, allowed us to access everything we need for life and godliness. Nothing left out, a complete package. And it says, we, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And it seems to be one of the important points in this passage. It says, through these, his glory and goodness... He has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Question. If it were possible not just to imitate the divine nature, but participate in it, would you be interested in that? Not just trying to be more godly, but tapping into some kind of power that actually enabled you to experience something from God. That's what it talks about, participating in the divine nature. And along it says, and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. If that were possible, not just to do what God wants you to do, but to avoid being pulled into doing something you don't want to do something the world is going to pull you into doing. If this was possible for you to participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires, would you be game? I would. What it says is that he has given us, well, there is something God has allowed us that is extended that allow us to do that, to participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption. He's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, through what? Through the promises, you can participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. This becomes important then. You know what you place our faith in? Well, if I ask you, what do you place your faith in when it comes to God? What are you supposed to place our faith in? Not in what we see and what is unseen. How can you look at what's unseen? But we have something to look at. And what we're to place our faith in? His very great and precious promises. So there's something that, that maybe to grab faith, 
needs to be rooted in promises. What do we place our faith in? Promises. That's what it says. And as we put our faith in God's very great and precious promises, it allows us to participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So we, we answer one question. Where does our faith need to go? In my character. No, that's not where our faith goes. My faith is to go into his promises. And again, we can't place our faith in something that we're unaware of. And that's why it's important to understand not God's commandments alone, but his commitments. You know, we talk about the Ten Commitments, and we have talked about them for a long time. If it's been a while since you've looked at those, I'm going to encourage you to look at them again. Why would I encourage you to look at that? Because that's where our faith needs to be placed. It needs to be in His promises and in His commitments. And if you root your promise there, you root your faith there, you'll start to experience, well, experience what? Look what the text says. For this very reason... Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. I want you to look up at that list. Is there anything missing there? As you think about the kind of life that you'd like to live, what you'd like your life to be characterized by, is that a decent list? Goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. That's a pretty good list. I, you know, I don't know that there's a lot missing there. And what it says is we add those qualities to faith. Add to your faith goodness. So these are superstructure things. These are the building that you see above the surface. But what is the foundation? The foundation is faith. Faith in what? That's a question. Faith in what? Promises. Promises. Faith in promises is the foundation. On that foundation, you can add goodness, perseverance, knowledge, self-control, brotherly kindness, love. But without the foundation, the superstructure can't go up. If you've got a house and you don't have a foundation, you can't have a house. That's where it says, add to your faith goodness. Faith is foundational. Faith in the promises. And once that's established, you can add to your faith these things and that things. Okay, here's a question then. What if you're lacking in godliness? What if you're lacking in self-control? What if you're lacking in perseverance? What if you're lacking in kindness? Brotherly love? What it says. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying if these qualities are no not they're not all or nothing, but if they 
tend to be increasing. They will keep you from being unproductive and ineffective in your knowledge. So you'll end up being the kind of follower of Christ who is fruitful. What if you don't see these things? What's the problem? You need to give more, maybe. What does it say? If anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. I'm nearsighted. And what that means? I can see something up close, but I can't see it up far. When, you, when, you, when you're nearsighted and blind, what ends up happening? We end up being conscious of forgiveness early on. As life goes on, we become nearsighted with respect to forgiveness. We become a little bit sloppy with it. We kind of bounce over it, thinking, well, that forgiveness was okay when I was younger. But now I need to take myself to task. Believing in forgiveness is going to make me lazy. Hmm. I need to not think about forgiveness. I need to think about obedience more. I need to focus on obedience, right? Right? Well, isn't obedience... Goodness? Is obedience knowledge? Is, obedi is obedience self-control? Brotherly kindness? Love? Is that obedience? You know what it's suggesting? We don't become obedient by focusing on obedience. Become obedience by focusing our faith on promises, promise of forgiveness. If these, and that's what it says, if he's nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. When forgiveness becomes fuzzy, what's happened to our faith? Our faith has become fuzzy. Faith in forgiveness is foundational. What do we need to do with this? What is suggesting then? Faith in forgiveness, faith in promises is absolutely foundational. To set that aside is to unplug yourself from the divine power that will enable you to participate in the divine nature. And so you say, Mike, I think I've got this forgiveness thing down. Do you? If God would look at you, what would he say to you? God would evaluate you. I think you'd I think you'd talk about my temper. I think so. Talk about your temper? We you talk about your self control? Will you talk about your lack of perseverance? Would you talk about how hateful or angry you're becoming? You know what the deal is? He wouldn't. You know what he'd ask? Well, you know what he'd he'd look at? The degree to which you're believing his promises. Because that's foundational, that's fundamental. That's at the core of this whole thing. In the wilderness, and that's the thing that happened, and we'll see there's other things. Hard-heartedness is an issue. Hard-heartedness leads to grumbling and testing. 
And if to deal with grumbling and testing, uh, you can try to squish down grumbling and testing. That doesn't work really well. What we find here, if you're going to put your focus somewhere, put it on promises, the promise of forgiveness. And let's apply this. Um, do you understand that you're forgiven? When God thinks about you, is he thinking about what you're doing wrong? I don't think he is. I really do. I think what he's saying is, if you're gazing at your behavior and glancing at him, switch your gaze and your glance. Gaze at him and his promises. Glance at your behavior. Gaze at him and, your prom and his promises. Glance at yourself. That's really hard to do. I told you this before. I was doing a study on the character of God once, a long time ago, and I was thinking about God and God being loving, and then I, I naturally right away thought about, but you're not loving. And then I think, but you know, but, but God, but you're not loving. And then uh, I, I went through this, and then it occurred to me, maybe I need to try to think about God being loving and not compare myself with him. I tried to keep my head up. You're no, don't do that, Mike. Oh, that's interesting. When I love, I break a sweat. But when you love, you don't break a sweat. I remember that day when I looked at God and I didn't compare him with me, but I was just looking at what he is. And, and I tried to adjust the gaze. Gaze at him and his promises. Um, how might you do that? I've told you before, it's been a while. If you've got promises that you like, how about this? What could you do on a regular basis to prioritize being focused on God's promises? I'm going to give you a minute to think about that. It would be, it's absolutely critical. What could you do that would allow you to focus on God's promises? Where would you go to look at them? If you haven't done it for a while, Ten Commitments, that's why that's why we did it. There's books back there, and it's not about selling the book, it's about you don't need to even buy the book if you don't <laughs> find a way to focus on God's promises and keep on doing it day after day after day. And you know what you'll find? Little by little, it's a little bit easier to be good, kind, patient, self-controlled. It's a little bit easier to be loving because that ability comes as we focus our faith in God's promises. Let's stand for closing prayer. God, promises are non-negotiable. We put our faith in promises. We need to be aware of your promises. And as we discipline ourselves to be aware of promises, this seems funny. Discipline ourselves to be aware of promises. But it makes sense in light of this passage. That's the way that our heart changes. As our heart changes, our thoughts change, and our attitudes change, and our actions change. I'd ask that you would help us to be more aware of your very great and precious promises so that through them we may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. In Jesus' name, amen.